Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We're delighted to have you. We hope your November is going well. We're around in the midpoint. Hard to believe Thanksgiving is just coming up soon. And in spite of the nuttiness that uh, 2020 has brought to all of us, we do have a lot, each of us, to be thankful for. And uh, there, there's just so much, so many good things going on here amid uh, all the nuttiness. Well, one of the things that I look forward to each month is a conversation with my longtime pal, former colleague, big brain, Tony Uphoff, who's the CEO of Thomas. Uh, Tony, welcome back. It is always a pleasure to have you here at Cloud Wars Live and hope things are going great for you. Hey, uh, Bob, thank you so much. I'm glad that you clarified. I didn't know if I was going to be introduced as the nuttiness that's going on or some of the good things or somewhere in between. So yeah, uh, but well, it, always enjoy our conversations. Thanks, Tony. It's early uh, in the episode. We will see which point which route you choose to go here. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what happens. So for, for folks who have uh, seen Tony before, um, we you know that one of the things he focuses on here, and it's a reflection of what his company does, a great data platform connecting buyers and sellers and the data that interconnects them in the industrial markets. Uh, Tony uh, is monthly, comes on and talks about up off on industry. So Industry is a broad term. Cloud Wars Live approaches our digital all-star friends in a broad way. So we might talk about industry, we might not. We might hit on a number of things, but Tony's career has spanned uh, companies in the media, business, industry, entertainment, and other things. And now with Thomas, I think he really pulls together a lot of uh, very interesting views on things today. So Tony, I wanted to ask you today, you know, some of the notes you sent over sounded very interesting. You wove together things like hyper-specialization, curators at the MoMA, hunters, gatherers. I flinched a little as I went back to, you know, some uh, college classes that uh, I, I barely crawled out of. But you've got some interesting, interesting ideas in there, my friend. So how do you pull some of those together today? And how did that uh, come to be top of mind for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've been been really trying to to turn my attention, Bob, to um, you know, as as we at Thomas go through a, a very accelerated digital transformation and it's leading to business model transformation. I've been really trying to, as best I can, understand what does that mean about our organization, the people we have, and how we structure their roles, what kind of roles we perhaps might need that we don't currently have in the spirit of talent gaps and other things. And it really led me to think about and then start talking to other CEOs in the industry about specialization. And, and, and I would put forth the, the thesis, Bob, that we've come through a decade or more of, of really hyper-specialization in business, you know, mirroring other parts of society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can imagine this around particularly tech centric businesses. It's not enough to have a developer. They've got to be a developer of a certain language. It's got to be a developer with a certain language that's a front end developer only. And then there's the back end developer and the subsets. And all those are critically important and, and have been very, very necessary. But what I believe we are starting to see at Thomas, and, and I would argue, Bob, is starting to really accelerate is that to an extent, digital transformation has started to blur some of the lines between these individual specializations. So what I've noted within Thomas, and I think we're starting to see this in other businesses, is it's really about 
the team that comes together around either a product or a service or an initiative and, and the diversity of knowledge in and around that team. And, and you could argue, Bob, what I'm describing is not new. I don't think it is new. I think what we're just, what I'm describing is something that its time has actually come. You know, I think we've talked about this idea of the collaborative team and you get somebody from finance and somebody from sales and somebody from product and they come together and do some sort of magic. I think what's happened is we've reached some sort of an inflection point or tipping point. And it could very well be these blurring of the lines between these functions where now these teams can come together in, in a way that I think is having a really, really uh, big approach. So the, 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 if, if that's the thesis, I think there's a series of truths that companies like mine and many other tech companies need to start being more overt in, in our, our intentions around. And I think overused expression, but Bob, things like multidisciplinary approach and things like that are words, but how do we actually start to think about what, what's the right organizational structure for these types of companies? The days of typical chain of command and top-down organizations, certainly in tech have morphed into something different but I believe we're starting to watch yet another clarion call that there's a, a different type of structure that perhaps organizations need to start to think through in order to really drive the type of collaboration that's going to result in growth. Oh, Tony, fascinating ideas here. Um, you know, as you're talking about that too, I think of as we move toward a general approach or toward a wide ranging approach of things and people with different perspectives on it. You've talked in the past about the need for everybody to be able to understand data at a different yeah. level. Yeah. And Tony, I kept, uh, as I was listening to you, what kept running into my head was this notion. I think it's been flushed out in a few places. I mean, like flushed out as the first term, as the first step in flushing away. Uh, rather than, you know, raising this up. Yeah. But this this notion of front office, back office. Yeah. Right? And yeah, we, we, yeah we it's a good example. Pigeonhold ourselves, right, in some ways here. And I just think that it, it is nuts to think that in this new world that we're, we're racing into, that that's going to be different. Like, think about a cook, right, and now contactless uh, meals, takeout orders, is a, is a is a cook a back office person a person yeah. who buys the food and specs these things out as people get more demanding well i want biotic chicken but i have to have this level of firmness in the pasta that goes with it and so forth like that i don't mean to make light of it because i think you're making a great point here we have to adapt to a new world where the talent is malleable flexible but always focused outwardly right not getting our heads down so much where we get boxed into somewhere in the old days somebody maybe couldn't add much to a broader conversation because he or she was never given the vision to see that bob and, and i don't remember if, if i'm going to attribute this appropriately to ibm or not but i recall something a, a few years back where ibm defined what they referred to as t knowledge so the, the the physical metaphor of the t that mm -hmm. you know at the top you've got broad and then you've got a very strong deep domain experience and i believe what they were trying to get across was the concept of what you and i are describing here mm -hmm. so i'll use myself as an example having come up through sales and marketing ranks that's probably still marketing and positioning and and understanding complicated sales structures and channels and go-to-market strategies is probably 
to the extent that I have it, a very strong domain experience and my, my, my singular level of expertise. But through the years, I've supplemented that with the broader part of that, of understanding product, understanding finance, understanding research, understanding design, understanding other things. And I think that to a great extent is what you and I are trying to unlock here in these types of conversations. But you know, at the same time, I'm trying to take it a step further of rather just talk about training and development. How do you organize for this? Uh -huh. be, be, uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? In other words, how do, yeah. you, how do you structure and not just create another committee that goes at something for 30 days and then either gets it done or doesn't get it done. I, I'm wondering, is there some sort of um, operational or organizational structure? You could argue, and certainly this is true in the case of Thomas, it's happening somewhat naturally. Every yeah. time we introduce a new bit of technology, a cross-functional group comes in to implement that technology. Sparks fly in a positive mm -hmm. way. It drives the flywheel. And then over time, and it could be you know as, as few as 60 days, as long as 120 days, that group dissipates, goes back to their core function, and the system now is just helping to run our business. And, and I may just be describing that. It is not actually a different structure. You know what I'm saying? It's not necessarily an organizational structure, but, but I think organizations are going to need to be very aware of how to be dare I use the cliched expression of nimble enough and agile enough to identify when these cross-functional groups need to come together and get something done. What are the measurements? What are the milestones? What are the timelines? Who's in charge? How does it get done? And then they recede back into their, their, uh, their day jobs, yeah. if you will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, I, 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 think the, the structure that you're describing for the company, you know, how formal does it have to be? I guess that depends on each company yeah. and what its culture is like. But I do think, you know, another way of coming at this is you want to think about the career path for everybody. Absolutely. But I think in particular, some young people who are coming into this, and then you think about, you know, one thing on top of that, um, wonderful news, you know, around the country, around the world over the last few weeks about <laughs> vaccines. Okay, say we get the vaccine. Now, are you as a CEO of your company based in uh, Midtown Manhattan, and I believe it's it's safe to say you are in Southern California right now. I am. So the vaccine side, are you going to say to everybody, okay, back to the office, you know, get on the subway, get on the train, get in your car, spend that, you know, 90 to 120 minutes of, of time getting back and forth. So you've got these uh, different sorts of knowledge, you've got the impact of data, you've got the collaborative things you've talked about, you've got this whole new office structure, non-office structure, as Bill McDermott says, your office becomes a productivity tool, use it when you need to, don't use it when you don't have to. So yeah, I think it's, Tony, you're sort of begging for a new type of uh, org structure built around a different sort of customer engagement, a different sort of, uh, access that people have, the data-driven model of what's coming in here today, and every company needing to really drive toward whatever its new future is becoming, rather than just trying to, uh, you know, hammer away, and if I, uh, you know, to that old notion of where we have been, where we've come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think part of what you and I are describing, Bob, is this this, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, uh, the, each, each function being a specialist and there's one or two people that like an orchestra leader that go and communicate with the specialist and then come back and take their wisdom and try to pass it along to the next person that that model's obviously played out and, and, you know, it's, it's much better today to connect 
these specialists around general goals and, and objectives of a company and let them you know, manage through that process in, in collaborative groups. But I think you're raising another kind of dimension to this that's been added, which I'll speak for myself, but I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've thought of McDermott's statement about you know, the office is a productivity tool, but none of us have ever thought of it that way. You know, we, we've thought of it as things like sunk cost. Uh, we've, we've, we've thought about it as, as uh, something mysteriously called a headquarters, as though that has some sort of other than symbolic significance, like, yeah. you know, other than for tax reasons and where a company's domiciled, it really makes zero difference. Um, and, and now that opportunity for us to start to think about this, to your point, can we be agile enough in our thinking and our updated, you know, learning, to start to think about, okay, if, if we're looking at the way our teams come together to get business done, then we have to consider the dimension and physical space of how our teams come together. And, and how does that factor into the future? And I am not one of those uh, people that believes there's wholesale change and then never more. In other words, yeah. I, I'm not one of these folks that are betting against the future of companies ever having offices again and you know all that kind of stuff. I, I believe companies will uh, return to some level of office use, including ours. And we're you know, planning for that as, as we speak. But I, I do think smart companies are gonna understand McDermott's point at an operational level. How do I turn this in to a productivity tool versus I spend X, I've got a 10 year lease on X and eh, you know, okay, it is what it is. Let's move on to other things. How do I start to think about this investment as indeed just what you said, you know, a productivity tool? Yeah, yeah, Tony. And um, I think within that, there's another angle, another dimension that your, your, your thought here has really triggered. And that is the, the nature of uh, partnerships between companies, right? In some ways, you know, we, we've, uh, one of your fellow monthly digital all-star guests here, Sean Amirati, has laughed a little bit about the Oracle TikTok relationship saying, wow, we're going on yeah. acquiring customers, truly uh, acquiring it. He says that yeah. good use of revenue. There's, you know, other ways though of looking at that are saying, you know, is there something that's happening in the digital world that's changing the nature of the relationship, not just within a company, but as that company engages with customers and the nature of those deeper customer relationships. And one that I'd share with you, Tony, and see what you think. Um, so this is uh, has to do with something we've talked about before. I think this uh, Novartis and Microsoft engagement yeah. and their creation of an AI innovation lab. Well, the chief digital officer from Novartis, I talked with him a few months ago, and he said, okay, if you go back to the beginning of the year when people were still physically collaborating, he said, one of the things he said, I enjoyed most, he said, was watching the Novartis teams and the Microsoft teams. He said, after a very short period of time, I really couldn't tell who was on who one was who? and who was on yeah. the other. He said it became yeah. indistinguishable because that was one of the, almost the requirements that would allow the full fruition of this new type yeah. of, you know, foundation level partnership to come together. So it's, inside the company, inside departments, inside teams, projects, on and on like that. But it's also going to start to pull in, I guess, in some ways, um, customers on one side. And then I guess from the customer's perspective, suppliers on the other side. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, uh, you know, and I'll use the term enlightened way to view it, Bob, because I think this idea of, you know, whether I'm looking at accomplishing 
a, a project or a product or a customer solution, I, I have to now take a broader view of the resources that are at, at, at my um, uh, you know, potential use. And I think to your point, partnerships. Um, and, and even I'd go I, I, you know, back to days you and I were first working together. Academia used to play oftentimes a role in some of these types of partnerships where there was research going on on college or university campuses that could be uh, transferred or understood or you know, added into it. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating going back, Bob, probably now about three years ago, I was at a social event where I happened to, uh, to um, spend some time with folks that uh, I had known when I was younger in high school and many of them have gone on to, to, to run companies and several have gone on to the biotech and pharmaceutical industry and some and things like that. I was talking to uh, one, one of my former high school colleagues who's a, a doctor and she's a, a professional at a pharmaceutical company and she knew that I was pretty involved in tech. And so she was asking me about the Apple Watch and I thought it was interesting. She made quite a point of kind of cutting me from the herd and asking me all these detailed questions about the Apple Watch. And I, I, I finally said, hey, Carrie, I, I'm not an expert on the Apple Watch. And, uh, but you know, I can give you my two cents worth. And she said, well, we're watching it carefully because we think it's kind of a joke, quote unquote, that Apple thinks they can get into the healthcare industry. And I, I thought, oh, interesting. It made me think about it when you're talking about the Novartis and Microsoft. And you know, I, I, uh, I'll, it'll stay nameless the company she's with, but I, I actually encouraged her. And I said, first of all, if you just look at the velocity of growth and scale and you take Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon and Apple, it's inevitable that they have to get into healthcare and education. There aren't that many large scale markets left for the get in to, to sustain the kind of growth. It doesn't mean they'll be successful, but trust me, they're gonna step into these markets and I don't have any insider knowledge. But I said, if I was in your shoes, I'd be on the campus of Apple having these conversations. I, I try to understand not are they friend or foe, make them friend, yeah. you know, understand how this could be leveraged and used because if you could imagine you know, billions of people wearing an Apple Watch and a company like yours having access to health data that might allow you to speed the development of a life-saving drug or, you know, some sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, where to invest your precious dollars on new drug development and things like that. Long way around to your, your core point there, which I think as we, um, as we think of the future of work, I think this is a moment in time where we can really start to liberate ourselves from the physical constructs and understand perhaps how to think about some of these partnerships in ways that maybe we, we hadn't thought of before. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a nice segue. I just want to check in with our sponsor here at BMC. Uh, BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. And Tony, I think it's interesting there, you know, that the, the note from BMC where uh, automation is paramount, yet effortless technology and people work as one. Um, this will happen more. Data becomes 
seamless, you know, to what we do. It, it's the, as somebody said, it is date, uh, date of the new Gatorade. And I said, well, you know, that's it's a great line. That's, you know, sure, sure. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's just, I think, those new ways of working and stuff. And then you think about the types of talent that every company is looking for today. And then you find some great talent. And maybe somebody says, I would love to come work for your company. And somebody else says, I work for you, but I'm, I'm going to do my own thing here and I'm going to set my own hours. And it's, it's going to be a very different world. So I, I just think, uh, if I could go back, Tony, to some of the things you talked about early, and you brought in the model of the organizational structure and how you set up a corporation. You've done this at a number of companies, so I know you know how to do it. But maybe one of the things that people have to think about there is 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 structure the right yep. word there, the org yep. structure, or is it yeah. in some ways what's the acceleration model or the optimization model? And we'll we'll have six at the same time if we need to. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Bob, you know, to a certain extent, and while it's not a new concept, we've been starting to think about our, our business more as an ecosystem uh, and or as a network in the, in the spirit of, hey, if we have this network, and we do, of uh, partners, um, of partners that we think of as in a business development context, um, I, I have a very uh, broad uh, 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 FOT network, Friends of Tony network that I'm shameless and you are on that network uh, that I tap on a regular basis. And, and, and I only say that half in jest because oftentimes being able to tap that network is incredibly powerful for my company because I'm able to get input and feedback from folks who have an interest because they're friends of mine and former colleagues, but they also have a, a way of looking at it that I might be in too deep to see it objectively and, and they'll provide a sense of context. I, I think of that as kind of a part of the, the, the resources I can tap if that makes sense. And yes, they're not employees and yes, they're not based in a physical location, you know, along with other employees of Thomas. But I agree with you. I think, you know, we're starting to see, you know, I, I don't want to call it a knowledge network, but we're starting to see the ability to uh, uh, leverage technology to in to engage and connect with knowledge and value where it and when it resides right you know it doesn't have to be in this kind of linear way that many of us grew up and those are painfully obvious points but i think this is a moment in time bob where i think leaders need to stop drop and roll and actually think about that and to your point, not from an organizational structure point of view, but perhaps from that, I'll, I'll use the expression knowledge network, that's probably too buzzy, but you know, an, an understanding of how to take an audit of all of the sources and resources the company has, where there might be some gaps, yeah. but also how to organize that knowledge, not organize the people, but organize that knowledge in ways that's operational uh, actionable, um, you know, helpful. Yeah, yeah. Tony, I want to offer, please, uh, an observation and a question about these network types of things. Our mutual friend and uh, your fellow Cloud Wars Live guest, Chris Lockhead, uh, has talked fairly often about Quora, 
I have not used it much. I, I'm aware of it. I know what it is. But some of the numbers that Chris talks about on that are, are astonishing. So how do you, as you were just describing, how do you reach into these networks of knowledge, networks of expertise? Doesn't require joint venture. Doesn't require, you know, six months of legal BS up front to do it at all. Uh, you know, that is that that's going to be one of those capabilities that allows companies and individuals to do stuff more quickly than ever before. And the, the question I wanted to ask about this, so in this Friends of Tony network, where, where, do, I, where do I rank? Well, Bob, that would be proprietary data. Um, it would be inappropriate for me to disclose something like for, that. For $5, now, I, could I get a, a peek? You know, when we're off, uh, off camera, I can, uh, I, can give you, I can give you a little feedback, gentle, gentle, but... Uh, <laughs> Hey, you know, Chris, as usual, is is on it. I, I'm I'm a fan of Core. I was a very very early user, and, and I, I backed off a little bit. I thought, for me personally and professionally, Core hit an inflection point of um, uh, almost like a game of Jeopardy. It, it was less about providing um, uh, expertise and more about demonstrating. I, I fancy that I understand the subject and and that kind of stuff. I, I, it, this is a, a good. Um, uh, a good reminder to go back and, and take a look at it. I'll tell you something we've been developing at thomasnet.com is, you know, it's a, it's a platform where buyers and sellers, uh, it's a two-sided marketplace, the buyers in this case, engineers, uh, procurement professionals, and what are called MROs who are sourcing products and uh, suppliers for industrial products and services. The suppliers would be custom manufacturers, product OEMs, it, it's interesting, the business historically was organized really uh, to optimize the advertising exchange. In other words, to help the supplier find a buyer, really, if you look at it. Over the last few years, we've, we've leveled the playing field, if that makes sense, in terms of the user experience. So the buyer experience and the supplier experience are very robust today. One of the benefits that's given us is the amount of feedback we get from both on a regular basis. So an average month, you get 1.6 to 1.7 million sourcing sessions. But the number of messages we get from suppliers that are seeing something in the marketplace that they're adapting to or that they're looking for or advice they want uh, to give us or things they'd like to see from us. And then the same thing could be a pro uh, procurement professional from Boeing and a, a you know, VP of manufacturing at a very large supplier, but we're capturing their, their input. Now, it's not an expert market in the way that Chris is defining Cora, but boy, it's gotten us thinking about that. The other thing is a part of the new uh, experience that we have for both the buyer experience and the supplier experience, they can fill out profiles. So not just a company profile, they can fill out an individual profile. And so as we extend that, we believe, we don't know, we believe what's gonna to start to happen is we may start to see some peer-to-peer -peer exchange or, or perhaps we create a construct of value there where if I happen to identify you and permission-based, you happen to be in a similar industry to me in a geographic area that, that has proximity perhaps, or you might have a discipline that's interesting to me, I might reach out to you and engage with you on the platform for your input. Um, because again, what we're trying to do is to, is to bring that flywheel of this two-sided marketplace together in ways that they both continue to see more and more and more and more value. That's how we make money. 
And um, so it's interesting thinking of Cora. We've, we've oftentimes thought that there's nothing new about an expert marketplace, but I think where you have the ability to, to engage an expert marketplace in, in ways where, where the friction's taken out. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't have to join a, uh, an organization. I don't have to fly to some meeting. I don't have to pay dues. I don't have to do all those types of things that, you know, I might see value, but boy, there's a lot of friction before I can really get to that value. Is there a way we can bring those expert networks together in, in, and that's really what social media has brought to us, but are there ways we can organize it in ways so that thematically, topically, um, and, and also from a level of, of um, careful validation. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm, assure, I'm, uh, I'm clear that this guy, Bob Evans, is who he says he is, and he works at the company that, he's, that they say he's affiliated with because it has the Thomas seal of approval. Mm-hmm. Those are really powerful in, in professional markets. So I think there's a lot of, of opportunity for companies to leverage those types of tools. Interesting, Tony. And I, I like how you... Uh... You've seen the evolution of, I'm not sure if this is just the right word, but almost like an asymmetrical value exchange becoming yeah. much more symmetrical, right? Yeah. And, and instead of, uh, you know, you reach those places in, in certain um, is a partnership of some sort or a value exchange where you know, there, there are some parts of the, as you describe, like the traditional advertising world where the, the, the hunters are out there and, you know, they, the hunted just uh, like, God, yeah. please stay away from me. I'll, I'll pay to leave me alone. How about that? Well, the, the interesting thing about a market like ours, Bob, you know, we, we, we have some 500,000 suppliers that are on the platform and, you know, there's what a million, six million, seven sourcing sessions in any given month. Here's the reality though. And this is where I think our flywheel really started to, to move in a more thoughtful way was the day we woke up, you would have thought we would have known this by now, or at least I would have known it. Others at the company did. Um, you, you can't be a supplier and not also be a buyer. Yeah. It, yeah. It's physically impossible, <laughs> right? So, it, you know, it, 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 it literally, to me, this was like one of these, you know, bing, light bulb moments and everybody's like, yeah, Tony, you're just now figuring this. Yeah, really brilliant observation. But all kidding aside, we started to really think about the, the, the two-sided marketplace in a multi-dimensional level then, where we started to really think, oh, well, wait a second. This isn't just the advertiser slash supplier. They're also buying things. They also have people in their company that are sourcing. Um, and they may be doing um, both buying and selling with the same engagement they have with somebody on the platform. You never know the kind of, think of the relationships you and I were talking about just a minute ago. So we've tried to get much more thoughtful about creating both the environment, but the set of tools. And and then kind of, if we can monitor the data, but get out of the way. So we can let, let them manage it, but then watch the data carefully. So we know when we could enable either a next functional feature of some sort through by monitoring how things are being used and, and, and what, what's actually transacting on the platform. Um, Tony, I just want to ask you one more thing about that because right, you hear sometimes uh, that, that notion of uh, higher levels of uh, artificial intelligence, higher capabilities with data where you know, companies come in and know stuff. How do they know enough so that they are able to impart the highest level of value to you without crossing the creepy line? 
and it sounded like one of the things that you were talking about, there wasn't so much the creepy side, but it's almost like, is it the annoying or the know-it-all or the just a, a sense of timing, right? Don't get into a conversation that's maybe going to go in a different direction and try to solve everything just because, you know, you feel a need to, uh, I, I've got to marshal this. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting is if you, if you go into an environment and you have a, a problem that needs to be solved. You have a job that needs to be done using the the, uh, the famous research out of Harvard, jobs to be done. And you put that job to be done out into the marketplace and you express it as a problem that, that you need to have solved. Um, you, you might find a ton of really valuable answers, but your understanding of the applicability of the answer has a lot to do with your expectations or the expectations of the person providing the feedback, right? So if you said to me, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, the lease is up on my car. I've been looking at new cars. You know, Tony, you know, I'm gonna put this out there. What, do you, what kind of car do you recommend? Well, if, if you get feedback from somebody who sells cars for a living, that might be very different than if you were to get feedback of somebody who's had six or seven different cars over the last decade and has a lot of expertise, but doesn't have a dog in the hunt. They're not gonna try to sell you a car because they don't have a car for sale. And my, my long-winded point here is, I think for a lot of these kind of knowledge networks or peer networks, and, and I'd use LinkedIn as probably the preeminent example right now, we, we, the noise to signal ratio on LinkedIn has gotten pretty bad. And understandably so, it's become a very, very large platform and they're struggling with some of that growth. Just recently disclosed that a lot of their advertising data was, was apparently not accurate and not correct. So they're, they're having some measurement challenges. But I think they're also struggling a little bit with, it's unclear when somebody reaches out to me what it is that they're looking for. And when it becomes clear, 99% of the time it has no relevance to me uh, professionally uh, or my company. And so I do think that that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle is we bring these, you know, we think a lot about that on the two-sided marketplace on ThomasNet is we're, we don't always get it right. Someone could go on and, you know, uh, engage with you to try to sell you something that's out of sync with your business or is not going to add value or those types of things. But the more we can use data to guide those, so the expectation's accurate on both sides, right? And not in that creepy way that you appear to know more about me than you should know, right? But in that you know, natural way, permission-based way, but more importantly, there's a certain nature of birds of a feather. We're, we're, you know, I, I get the idea that you're intersecting with me because you actually know all the data and information and the data sets about my company. And it's been organized in a way with which you use data to make decisions professionally. Mm -hmm. Well, Tony, that, uh, that, that whole sense of, you know, bringing folks together to explore ideas, the right time, the right place, the right data environment and so on like that. It, it brings up another, I think, uh, really interesting point that you raised today about curiosity. So we're, we have different means now. I guess some people might say there's never been a better time in the history of the world to be curious than, than there is right now. There's, there's astonishing uh, levels of knowledge, information, data out there, and ways to get to it. But it seemed like what you're raising here more was not so much 
finding answers as the nature of what curiosity itself is and how we try to, um, you know, within an organization like yours and a world that's changing so quickly, you want to really nurture that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We, uh, um, we, we were recently doing a, a, some, some uh, as we call it, attribute mapping and basically just taking a look at across our employee base employees that are really accelerating and having an impact, what are the attributes that might be common amongst you know, the, the employees? And what we're trying to do as every company does is, is making sure that um, we're very intentional about those attributes. We nurture those attributes to the extent that we can, we develop them and, and, and but as importantly, we recruit for them as well. And one of the ones that we kept defining and I've had this in other companies was innate curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, people that come to the party with, hey, Bob, how did you know how to do that? How did you start a podcast? What, how, like, where did you turn to be able to do that kind of thing? How did you, how did you become a journalist? What, what, what did you study that in school? Or where did that come about? People that come to the party with that innate curiosity tend to do very, very well in business. And for the most part, because they get curious about how the business operates, but particularly those that engage with customers tend to get very curious about customers and solving customer problems. So curiosity becomes something that if you can identify it appropriately, and it can be a little ethereal, you know, it, it can be hard to put your, your, your hands on. Um, and, and then we, we got into deciding or, or trying to figure out the difference between random curiosity, um, and I believe it's called epistemic curiosity, which is more structured curiosity. And you know you're 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 smiling and nodding your head because both you and I have friends and and uh, that that their curiosity is so vast that it it's it's impossible to harness it and focus it because they're they're, they're really just they're they're interested in anything and everything and um, their interests are really vast. Where I've seen curiosity it sounds wrong to say it, it harnessed, but when I've seen it apply just brilliantly is when it becomes that epistemic curiosity where there's a certain structure and focus to it that really fuels organizations. And there's some, you know, there's a couple of great examples of this. Steve Jobs would be an iconic example of that. Um, I always argued that, you know, people thought that Steve Jobs took his inspiration from, um, you know, the the HP, you know, founders and and that kind of stuff. I, I believe his inspiration was Walt Disney. And, and I think, um, he, he took a lot of inspiration for the, you know, just relentless curiosity that Walt Disney had and how he applied that and how he actually created companies that kept kind of curiosity at the center of what they did. So I've been giving a lot of thought to that. There's a, there's a relatively new book out called Curious by a writer called Ian Leslie. And, and I have found it to be um, it, an extraordinarily insightful book. I, I, I would argue it's an insightful book for anybody, for just you know a, a, anybody in any walk of life. I think it's particularly uh, helpful for uh, business leaders, for teachers, for educators, for parents, because it really starts to help understand not only how to identify and nurture curiosity, but how to retain curiosity as you go forward. But um, going back to the, the, the kind of core point as it relates to a company like Thomas, it's something we're spending a lot of time trying to better understand. And in two dimensions, how do we recruit for it? But how do we um, 
allow people to express it in ways that's productive. Because oftentimes curiosity can seem like, like a random thought. But you know, if, if we can put it in the right framework and allow for people to express that curiosity, and I'll, I'll give you a real simple example, Bob. Um, as we were starting to, to accelerate the digital transformation of our company or the latest stage of digital transformation, um, a lot of the, the, uh, the advertising products that had been developed on thomasnet.com were incredibly complicated and need to be individually configured. So the sales organization, this was set up in a different era, while the technology underpinning was, was fairly complex and advanced, the actual process was laborious. It took a long time to do, multiple days. You'd get customers kind of confused. They thought, are you making this intentionally confusing for, for me? So it was something when I first started, I thought, God, we, there's gotta be something we could do here. So we had advertising product people, we had sales leaders, we had marketing people looking at this. And as we started to get more cross-functional, what I found is the people that had the biggest curiosity about this was the tech team. And the tech team was just, were just genuinely curious. They were business, they were and are business minded. They understood how we made money, but they kept thinking, well, would it, would it actually be better if we put these into programs based on the data of what works and our knowledge of what doesn't, put these into menu driven programs that are easy for a customer to see and understand. And they're based on historic uh, value and then in turn, wouldn't it be easier for the sales rep to what to sell it? And initially, years ago when we were starting on this, a lot of the sales leaders balked because they thought, well, what does the sales rep do then? If the sales rep's not configuring this semi-custom bespoke program, the customer's not gonna value the relationship with the sales rep. But it was that level of curiosity by the tech team that led to us doing this and the breakthrough within it wasn't even 45 days. I, I thought the sales staff was gonna carry us around on palm fronds, they were so <laughs> excited, but they didn't see it. They were too close to it. And they had been doing this the same way. And it's not that they weren't curious, they were curious about other things, but it was actually the exposure to this and the curiosity of the tech team of saying, well, gosh, and you would think, well, the tech folks shouldn't be doing developing your, your advertising value propositions in your, in your programs. But that's actually where that breakthrough came yeah. from. And I'd like to think, Bob, it's an example of us you know, providing information and data, being reasonably transparent and letting people see how these things operate, bringing cross-functional groups together, kind of the, the various threads of what we've been talking about this afternoon. But then the real curious people were kind of like, why do we do it this way? You know, they, they weren't afraid to ask the big why, as yeah. I call it. You know, the, the kind of, you know, frightening question of uh, why exactly are we doing it this way? And, and if you've been, if you're right at the heart of the function that's been doing it that way for 20 years, you may not be in the best position to answer that question, yeah. right? Because you, it just is who you are versus somebody else who can just express that curiosity in a way of saying, hey, why do we do it that, this way? And should we consider doing it a different way? Yeah, Tony, you know, that's a, it's a fantastic stories. I, um, I can't help but <clears throat> go back to that point about the front office and back office, right? Like, yeah, as you said a moment ago, it's, you know, why would we have the, the tech? Or why would you expect that the tech team would either know how to figure this out or not? But I imagine the solution was pretty tech driven. 
Uh, Absolutely. And so when we allow ourselves, I think, to get pigeonholed in, I'm a front office person. I don't need to know about the back. I'm a back office person. I don't deserve to know about what goes on out in the marketplace. That's, that seems like a, to me, a really stultifying culture to develop there. And I tell you, you know, listening to you describe the notion about curiosity, cultivating it, recognizing it, trying to, you know, bring that forward and the, the success that people have had with that, I believe still, and I, I Tony, I'm sure you and I have talked about this some that one of the biggest dangers a leader can make in this world today is to quickly either uh, toss out the notion or fall back on the idea of that's not what we do. That's not yep. the business we're in. That's not where we want to go. Uh, you know, on and on like that. And certainly we've all got to set up some boundaries, right? That say, no, no, we don't go over here, but that sort of knee jerk reaction is saying, no, 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 that that's not what we do. Just sort of blots out, uh, culturally this notion even if there are curious people it's like well i don't want to be the one to get my head bitten off by saying that and even if i do bring it up they're gonna not going to listen anyway we, that that could be overstating it but i i think those cultural uh learnings and teachings and those imperatives that come down of like you know you will shut up and you will be told what to do around here that that ultimately yeah. is what a lot of people get and who the hell here in 2020 with the alternatives that are available wants to, to live and work in an environment like that. And I, so I think um, I, I really love this idea that you're bringing up about curiosity, not just a quirky thing. And, you know, we understand there are some of the folks that will drive you crazy. You know, would you please just stop asking me questions uh, right. versus the, the high value notion of that. And as you said, try to recognize it, cultivate it. And to the extent it's possible, teach that. So, um, Tony, where did you and the, the crew leave that? Is it something that's coming through the HR organization or how do you try to push this forward? Yeah, if, you, if you've got another minute, Bob, I'll tell you one more anecdote of, of kind of this, this becoming so clear to me. And then I'll tell you what we're thinking about. And we haven't really got a complete answer to your, your kind of who owns this you know, question. Um, on March 12th, like many companies, we made a pivot to fully remote operations uh, that uh, Friday was Friday the 13th, and um, you know we had, we had had a, a sleepless 24 hours, but the transition had gone you know uh, quite well, or even better than we expected. About 7:30, maybe even 8 o'clock on Friday night, I got a text from our chief technology officer and said, "Hey, do you have do you have time for a, a video conference call?" And he rattled off a few names of people, and I'm thinking. Well, this isn't a tech failure. I wonder what the heck this group wants. And so I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, so we all get on the on the uh, the call, and our head designer, brilliant, brilliant guy, um, in a very impassioned way, talked about the need to create what he was calling a COVID nineteen response hub. And at the time, I I, I kind of got where he was going, but I couldn't completely wrap my head around it until what he said was. There are PPE suppliers on the platform, but there's an enormous, and we were talking about this openly, we were being, um, uh, uh, we were just receiving a ton of reach outs from uh, manufacturers that could pivot to produce either medical equipment that would help uh, like uh, respirators or related equipment, or they could make PPE equipment, mm -hmm. but there was no there there. They didn't have a place to go and register and allow people to see them as a PPE supplier. And so this designer came up with this idea. 
And within 48 hours, we had a place <laughs> wow. where we could register, wow. validate. And Bob, to this point, we've had, what is that, eight months, I guess, running the math mm -hmm. on this. We've had uh, 6,500 suppliers wow. register, 4,500 qualified by our, our verification. Uh, they've been up and we've had 1.8 million sourcing sessions <laughs> from buyers to those suppliers of PPE. Now, again, the people running the platform, the product platform, and our designer is involved in those conversations, but they didn't think of this. He thought of it. Now he rallied folks. And by the time they, they got my, uh, my awareness on a Friday night, they had already started to chat with each other. And I found myself looking on the video screen and myself included, I had a glass of wine. There was beers and yeah. wines and yeah. cocktail around. Yeah. People are having their Friday night, but it was this idea of um, you know, this team expressing both a sense of mission, which I really value as well, yeah. that we need to do something more than just try to make a buck off this. We need to help. We need to do something. But also the sense of curiosity about what could we do to help? And, and it was a unique way of helping. It wasn't just, hey, if you, if you, you know, you're looking for PPE, look at these suppliers. It was a way of saying those suppliers aren't enough. We need more suppliers. What mm -hmm. could we do? And it, it was a great example, in my opinion, of, of harnessing that. In terms of kind of how do you keep the flame of curiosity going and who owns that? At this stage, working very closely, we've got a tremendous human resources team working very closely in two dimensions on that. One is identifying the attribute and being very intentional in when we recruit and in all of our development programs in and around curiosity. And so that's relatively new for us, Bob, but that's something that we've, we've done. Um, we use an online learning platform called Lessonly. And part of um, the benefit to that is we can provide a fairly broad and deep range of, of I'll call them courses, but mm -hmm. lessons. And so, you know, for the curious, they can learn about other parts of our business. They can learn about, you know, uh, what's happening in other parts of the company or maybe in a discipline that, that is not their core competency. And so we can help them nurture that sense of curiosity and now we're starting to look a little farther down the road. You know, I don't think you'll see us do the, the, the Google 20% time step, whereas I'm sure your listeners know, I don't know if Google still does this, but at formative stages allowed people to take 20% of their time and work on a project of their own choosing, you know, as, as, as to, to, to solve a problem or, or come up with some unique idea or explore a curiosity around the business. I don't know that we'll take that step, but, but I, I really want to find those ways of creating enough breathing room while we still do what we do. We're a for-profit business and we've got a business to run, but that we allow for that curiosity to take shape and to manifest it, it itself in ways that benefit our business, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not, I'm not here as an advocate for overarching curiosity, even though I am. I, I want that curiosity to benefit uh, our business, you know, uh, at, at Thomas. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a funny thing of trying, it's a little like creativity. You know, how do you operationalize creativity? Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people have tried, myself included. What I found over time, Bob, is I think what you do is you create the right environment for it and you hire for it mm -hmm. and you reward it. I don't think, you know what I mean? I don't think you can yeah. demand it. I don't think you have curiosity on demand or creativity on demand, but boy, 
I, you know, and I, I, I know when I've done my best work, I, I, I feel like I've been a part of a team that's created that environment and brought the right chemistry of skill sets together where that creativity can happen. I think curiosity, I think I will look back and, 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 uh, and, and see that curiosity is in the same vein. You set yeah. the environment, you hire for it, you nurture that attribute, you re reward it, and, and then you reap the benefits of it. Yeah, I think, Tony, from your description, there, it sounds, you know, curiosity and creativity are close cousins, you know, some connection. Um, Tony, as of this episode right now, we're instituting a new policy on Cloud Wars Live at the end of each episode. I will give an assignment to the guest. So are you prepared? I am. I, I'm, I have my pen at the ready. Okay, great. So you know that that great line, I've seen it uh, most frequently on T-shirts. It says, <clears throat> the beatings will continue until morale improves. Your assignment, Tony, for next uh, next episode is to come up with a T-shirt that brings to life your feelings about curiosity. I like that. Now, do I have to be wearing the T-shirt? We never would be ones to try to impose that sort of, you know, <laughs> rigidity on a creative person like you and a curious person like you. I mean, yeah. good curious yeah. person like yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I'll accept. I'll accept the challenge, my friend. All right. All right. Tony, this is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, always, always great talking with you. Um, I, uh, I I look forward to the T-shirt. I look forward to our next conversation. And thanks. You know, you, you've pulled together a remarkable thread, as you often do, of wide ranging ideas that are intellectually interesting. But as you've said, you know, you're a CEO. This, there's a purpose to this and there's uh, a way to use those ideas to drive value and innovation and just more successful organizations. So thanks for sharing all that, Tony. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me on. Always enjoy our conversations. All right, great, sir. And uh, to all of you, especially, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we hope you'll tune in to Cloud Wars Live between now and Thanksgiving. If you're not able to do that, uh, all the best to you and yours for a very happy Thanksgiving. And thanks for being a part of the team here. So long. <laughs>